If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 9, where we're going to be, for the next few minutes, looking at a surprising conversion and call. A surprising conversion and call. As we turn to God's Word, let's return to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung You are sovereign over all. You are sovereign over your friends. You are sovereign over your enemies. And we rejoice, Father, that you are sovereign over turning your enemies into your friends. And Father, that's who we all were apart from your gracious and kind and merciful work. Oh, Father, would you, through your word now, as your people gather to hear you speak to us through your word by your spirit, would you strengthen our faith? Would you enable us to take our eyes off of all of the temporary cares of this world and have them fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Oh, Father, please speak to your gathered people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are in uh, week number 22 of uh, looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission and exposition of the book of Acts. Uh, Why Acts? Uh, Well, here we are at Grace and Peace in 2019. We are part of this ongoing expansion and growth of the church that we see described in Acts. Here in Acts, we look back at what God has done in Jesus Christ. We look ahead to what God is doing and will do now by the power of the Holy Spirit among us. As we've been saying, Acts can provide both an anchor and an engine for us. It orients us and holds us fast to the work of God uh, back then and now. But it also pushes us forward to proclaim the gospel, to defend the gospel. It's an anchor holding us back, and it's an engine moving us forward. Acts is not only the record of the expansion of the church, but it's also the record of the work of the gospel in exposing the hearts of people. We we saw last week the heart becomes visible when the gospel is proclaimed. The heart is either soft and repentant before the Lord or it remains hard and unrepentant before the Lord. Last week when we looked at that curious and strange case of Simon the magician, we we looked at his response to the preaching of the gospel, his request to the the apostles, and, and then his rebuke. And unlike what we saw at the beginning and end of chapter 8 with the curious case of Simon, There was no repentance and there was no joy. Simon was never heard from again. But today we move on to Saul, the Pharisee Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who unlike Simon, Paul will be heard from over and over again. Now, I think we've all played this game. It's a game that can be both fun and exciting when we look back, but it can also be sad and frightening when we look ahead. 
Well, what game am I talking about? Kids, do you have any idea what game? Hey, that's a good guess. Well, the game I'm thinking about is this, the what-if game. We've all played the what-if game. What if Saul had not met Jesus on the road to Damascus? What if Saul had not been converted? Well, for one thing, we'd be missing 13 of 27 books in the New Testament. And we'd be missing the central figure in the expansion of Christianity. Humanly speaking, without Saul, without Paul, Christianity would probably possibly still be some kind of backwater sect of Judaism. But the Bible does not present itself as a what-if game. The Bible is not the record of what-if God, but rather the Bible is first and foremost the record of what God has done, what God has done especially for His people and what we, his people, are called to do in response to what he has done. You see, the Bible, as we we're going to see, gives us the record of what God did in Saul's life. So it's to the most famous conversion story in church history that we now turn. It's three times, as I mentioned, in Acts. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. And we see aspects of it all over Paul's letters. We're going to examine the cause and effects of Paul, Saul's conversion as we consider this narrative account of his life before, during, and after his conversion. And we're going to do this by looking at Saul in three relationships with himself, his pre-conversion state, with Jesus at the time of his conversion, and then with the church after his conversion. So let's look first at Saul in relationship to himself, verses 1 and 2, his pre-conversion state. Join with me as I read verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Well, let's look at Saul, the man, his mission, and his message. The man, Saul of Tarsus, a Roman city significant in that day and time for, for trade and education. He's, he's a Pharisee. He's He's well-educated in the law. He's taught by Gamaliel. He's an excellent student. And he's a bitter opponent of Jesus Christ. He's a bitter opponent of the church. And so because of the man, he, he's got a mission. And his mission, as we see already in Acts, uh, Acts 8, and Saul approved of his execution, talking about Stephen, and as in, in other things, what Paul, Saul is doing, he's got a mission. He's on a seek and destroy mission to destroy and to extradite. He, he's not a satisfied man. He's anxious. He's got a zeal for the ancestral traditions and righteousness through law keeping. It drove him, as he would later uh, say in, in, in Galatians and in Philippians in particular. 
Look at verse 1. Still breathing threats and murder. Not speaking threats and murder, but breathing. Breathing in. It's the air that he breathed. He was so consumed to stop this this breakaway sect of Judaism. He was consumed. It was the air he breathed. If you look back at eight, chapter 8, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He is ravaging the church. He is, some translations say, causing havoc. One commentator uses this expression. He is a wild and ferocious beast. His heart is filled with hatred and his mind is poisoned by prejudice. The man, Saul of Tarsus, the the Pharisee, he has a mission to destroy the church, to arrest and eradicate Christians. He's got a message You see, Saul considers Christianity not only wrong, but deceptive as well, leading God's people away from the truth. Saul is consumed to stop the plague of this false religion. You see, Stephen, before the council, had said, the new has come in Jesus Christ. And Paul or Saul has none of that. He says, no, the old must stay. Now what do we see in this picture of Saul that's not written specifically? That's not expressed directly? What we see is Saul's absolute confidence. Self-confidence. There is no hesitation. There's no doubt. He is self-satisfied, supremely confident. He's quite content. He did not consider his teacher Gamaliel's warning. Look back with me at chapter 5. I want to read a couple of verses. We were there a few weeks ago. Chapter 5, verse 38. Remember, the the apostles are arrested and the council is is, uh, talking about what they're going to do. And Gamaliel says, So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them. You might even be found opposing God. Saul did not take his teacher's advice. Saul was calculating, but he left something out of the equation. He left out the sovereign power and the sovereign grace of God. Before we move on, let's think of ourselves. Um, You know, they say that it's good to have confidence. You know, people want coaches that are confident and players that are confident and uh, business leaders that are confident. You know, confidence is important, but the question sort of like has to do with faith. You know, what's your confidence in? Are you confident in the wrong thing? Are you confident in something that's deceptive? It's important. What are we confident in? Saul, extremely confident in himself. 
And just like Saul, we make plans, don't we, and leave some things out of the equation, right? Kids, I'm not that great in math, so I like to solve, you know, the easy variables, you know, like 5 plus x equals 7, okay? That's my kind of solving the equation problem, not multiple variables, not differential equations, not hard stuff, easy stuff. But we all make equations. If I do this and I do that and this happens and that happens, then this will result, right? We all do that. But in our equation, do we say if the Lord wills, if it pleases the Lord, if it's honoring to God and helpful to people, is our professional theology put on the back shelf and our functional theology is what drives us. Ask yourself that question. Are are we leaving something out of the equation? Saul obviously did, and he is about to become aware of that. Saul isn't left to himself on his journey to Damascus. He unexpectedly encounters the risen Christ. Let's look at verses 3 through 9. Saul in relationship to Jesus. In other words, his conversion on the road. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. It's interesting that today... Syria is in the news. Israel is in the news. And, and from Jerusalem to Damascus is 135 miles, 150 miles, depending on where you mark it. It's a five or six day journey at that time walking. And on the way, Saul meets someone in a literally a life-changing encounter. You see, Saul encounters the divine presence. There's a light and a voice. It's an, it's an audio-visual experience. It's an overwhelming experience of God's glory. You think of um, Isaiah chapter 6. You think of John on Patmos in Revelation um, in view of the glory of God. And for Saul, it both blinds him and it knocks him to the ground. And then when Saul hears a voice from heaven, he is immediately forced to reconsider everything he has ever believed. His spiritual world is, as it were, turned upside down. And two things are made absolutely clear to Saul, the Pharisee. One, Jesus is alive. The one who had been crucified had indeed risen And was alive. And secondly, it was made clear that he, Saul, was actually persecuting Jesus 
as he was going after to persecute followers of Jesus. Twice Jesus in, in says that, you know, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. My friends, here is what's going to begin Paul's understanding in scripture as he writes to the churches of union with Christ. Jesus is identifying with his people, his body. It's the union of believers and their Lord. And we talk when we observe the Lord's Supper about believers feeding on Christ by faith. We talk about when we look at Ephesians, uh, in Christ you have this blessing and that blessing. We, we talk about the fact that we are brothers and sisters together because we, we are in Christ. And here, interestingly, for Saul, his initial lecture, lecture in this great comforting doctrine is when Jesus says, when you're persecuting my people, you are persecuting me. What is Jesus' action? How does he respond? He answers the question with his identity and he issues a command. And this divine demand requires the trust and obedience of Saul Indeed, Gamaliel, his teacher, was right. Saul had found himself fighting against God. On the road, Saul is converted. He's not killed. He's converted. He's not just rebuked. He's not killed. He's shown mercy. He, he receives mercy earlier Remember, uh, there was some church discipline, maybe Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Sudden death. Here, he receives mercy. He's allowed to live. He finds grace. He's given new life. Grace, you see, arrested him, blinded him, flooded over him. For those of you that have been with us for our um, The Grace of God Has Appeared uh, sermon, you know, this is a grace that changes us. This is a robust grace that pursues us and conquers us. It's not grace, do whatever you want, grace. It's life-changing grace. Paul encounters that. He changes. One commentator says this, The object of worship does not change for Saul, but the way this God is understood changes significantly as a result of this experience. And as a result, Saul also changes. You see, everything changed in his understanding of God. Let me ask you this question. Is going to church important? You know, I know we can say, yeah, church is not a building it's the people and it is tough to say well what church do you go to I mean the better thing is to what church do you belong to and are committed to I mean that takes longer to say right right but that's maybe a great idea what church are you a member of and committed to and who's committed to you um is going to church important well think about this Paul as it were is going to church He's zealous for the Lord. He thinks he's doing the Lord's will. He's on the way to do the Lord's will. And he meets Jesus. Do you think the gospel should be proclaimed in the workplaces, 
and in the restaurants and in the homes in this area? Absolutely. Do you think the gospel should be proclaimed right here? Absolutely. I love it when people who go to church come to faith in Christ. That's what happened to Saul. At church, in church, people encounter the risen Christ and they change. Notice Paul is blinded. Saul is blinded. It's an acted parable. This blindness shows the spiritual bankruptcy of his pre-Christian condition. It's physical blindness is portraying the darkness that had engulfed his heart even at the time when he, he was serving the Lord as he knew him. Now having seen such glory, Saul is reduced to powerlessness and helplessness before the Lord. It's his conversion. It's an objective event. There are third party witnesses and yet it's personal. Let's make a few comments before we go on. Uh, what is the cause of Saul's conversion? It's God's initiative. It's God's sovereign grace. Paul didn't decide. God decided. It came from the outside. And what was the means? The means of his conversion. The spirit, the power of God, and the word of God. What Saul heard changed him. C.S. Lewis, in his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy, uh, has some interesting uh, metaphors to help his reader understand his own conversion. He speaks of a, the fisherman, you know, got the fish on the hook. He, he, he speaks of the cat chasing the mouse, the, the hound uh, going after the fox. And for some of you out there, uh, he sees them as the chess master getting ready for the checkmate. Or is that the right word? Is that how you do good in chess? Yes. He goes on to say this, quote, The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. You want to hear that again? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and His compulsion is our liberation. Saul found that. That God's hardness in confronting him was kind and gentle. And God's decision to arrest him and constrain him and change him was indeed Paul or Saul being set at liberty. Here's Saul moving from self-centered independence to dependence on the Lord and an interdependence with others. So blinded by Jesus' glory and humbled by his own helplessness, Saul needed others to lead him by the hand. Picture this. He is going from wanting to lay hands on Christians. Why? To arrest them, to throw them in jail, to hurt them. He's going from wanting to lay hands on Christians to being led by the hand. And then hands laid on him. Saul's saving encounter with Christ, his conversion, it leads, it cannot but lead to another encounter, this time with God's people, the church. Let's pick up uh, verse 10 where we look at Saul in relationship to the church, his post-conversion state. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. In his call to God, Saul has a new reverence for God. It, it, there's a, it's a prime example now of a pride-shattering grace. He, he spends three days fasting and praying. He spends three days worshiping God, giving thanks and praise for God's forgiveness, for God's wisdom, and, and for God's power. His call to God involves a, a new reverence for God. Now, we don't have the the ability to probe accurately into the heart of people. But Paul, as a Pharisee, prayed the prayers and said what he needed to say. And whether he believed that from the heart or just from the lips, we, we don't know. But here you get this picture that, that, that Saul, after he's being laid low, is communing with the Lord. He's got a relationship now with the Lord. He's praying to the Lord. And so there's also a call to God's people, his new relationship to the church. He's born again, not only before the Lord, but into a new family. This arch enemy of the church is welcomed as a brother. Both son, he and Ananias are both sons of God through faith in Jesus. He's He's received visibly and, and publicly into the church the community of Jesus. Um, you can't get away from it, can you? Uh, worship God with one heart and one voice, right? And welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. I, I thought it was in Acts, excuse me, I thought it was in Romans 15. It's actually here also in Acts 9. There's the worship of God. There's the welcome of one another. He's got a call from God to proclaim Christ and to suffer. Saul is not only converted, but as we have just seen, he is called. And just like his conversion, he's called because he's chosen. 
He's a chosen instrument of mine, Jesus says, to proclaim Christ, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He's called to suffer for the sake of my name. And that call is both general, as in 2 Timothy 3, to everyone who desires to lead a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus told his disciples, hey, they hated me, they'll hate you. Here Paul is, is getting the call to proclaim Christ, to suffer for Christ. Now, we don't have to play the what-if game when it comes to Saul. He was converted, and in God's sovereign plan, here at Grace and Peace, we are some of the fruits of his labors in the gospel ministry. And as we come to a close, I want us to think about two surprising things before us in our text. First, as the title suggests, it's a surprising conversion. This is the conversion of an enemy of Jesus and the church and the gospel to an ally. I love our shorter catechism, when it talks about uh, uh, Jesus Christ as king, he, he conquers us, he subdues us, and he, he protects us from all his and our enemies. It's a surprising conversion. It's also, it's a surprising call. He's not just now an ally of God and the church. He, he's moved from a persecutor He's moving to being a proclaimer and a protector of the church. John Calvin, in looking at this passage, says something very interesting. He says this, not only in such, that God's grace is seen not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. What a, what a picture. The wolf who was attacking the sheep, has not only become a, a sheep, but he's, he's becoming a shepherd of God's people. Wow. Blinding glory loses his sight. He, he's a humble recipient. Now that he's, his, his, his vision is restored, he, he's going to be an eager publicist of what? Unmerited grace. And he knows that that's going to entail a call to suffer. But, I, what, but what I believe God wants us really to get out of this text primarily is this. Don't be surprised. In other words, once we get over the initial shock of the gospel, don't be surprised by the power of God to change you, to change others. My friends, if God can, can turn his fiercest opponent into his willing servant, he is able to save anyone. Here's the future. What if God saved my coworker? What if God was pleased to change and restore the difficult relationship I have with my relatives? What if God was pleased to use this church in a community to proclaim the gospel. 
What if? Are you, are you praying along those lines? What if, God? Don't be surprised by the power of God to change you, to change anyone. And don't be surprised by the call of God that entails suffering before glory, a cross before a crown. After all, that's what Jesus told us. Paul echoes it. Peter echoes it. Ask yourself the question of the future. What if I have to suffer loss and rejection? What if people, my coworkers, my classmates, my neighbors, what if they think I'm weak and foolish and need this Christianity thing? What if, guess what? So what? Don't be surprised by the power of God to change anyone. Don't be surprised by the call to suffer. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? This is a joy, the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. Forgiven of our sin of opposing God. Freedom from our efforts to make ourselves right with God. My friends, do you know this joy? Do you know this forgiveness? Do you know this freedom? Oh, may may we, all of us, know that and may we long for others to know that. May we long for others to encounter Jesus and have their life changed. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversion story, this story of your sovereign goodness and grace and power changing the life. We thank you, Father, that we have seen not only a glimpse of your greatness and your power, but your goodness, your mercy. Oh, Father, For those of us that are um, possibly wrestling with sin and sin is getting the upper hand, let us not be surprised by your power in us to fight that sin. For those of us that long for relationships to be restored in family and friendships, oh God, let us not be surprised by your power to soften hearts to change hearts. Father, indeed, for those of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, our own conversion, our own call is somewhat surprising. That you, a holy God, would rescue a lost, rebellious, stubborn sinner. Father, may our lives be a display of thankfulness and gratitude for our rescue from sin and death. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.